Please open your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, our text is verses 15 to 17. <clears throat> Last Lord's Day, we had went over uh, the passage that deals with our connection to Adam, that on the day of judgment, that you will be represented by one of two men as you stand before the Lord, either Adam or Christ. That our connection with Adam was as such that when Adam rebelled against the Lord, that we rebelled in him. And that his sin, his transgression is imputed to all mankind. So that as mankind is born into the world, they are not in a state of innocence, but they are already born sinners. As David himself confesses, in sin did my mother conceive me. And so there is the necessity then to have another representative in order to come before the Lord, to be received by the Lord, to receive divine favor, and that is through Christ himself. Christ is the last Adam. He's the new representative. He is the one who has redeemed us. He is the one who has brought us back and reconciled us to the Lord. As you go through chapter 5 leading up to our text today, you find so many things that are uh, the great benefits and the blessings of, of our salvation not only being justified by faith, which is, which is the main theme running through all of these verses here. But because of our justification, we're saved from the wrath of God through Christ. And though we were enemies of God, we've now been reconciled to him through Christ. We're saved by his life, as he says. And we have reason then to truly rejoice in the Lord Recognizing that we have received, again, in verse 11, the reconciliation. The apostle then goes into elaborating on that. Once again, connecting us with Adam, that because of Adam and his rebellion, because of his sin, that all mankind is now in sin and death is entered into the world. It came through the one man. It came through one act of disobedience, one transgression, as we'll also, also look at today, this transgression resulted in condemnation for all mankind. It isn't just a matter of having some kind of a law in order to blatantly break the law of God that condemns us. Because as we went over last Lord's Day, he says in verse 13, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Even for those that never had the law, they still died. Why did they die? Because they're guilty before a holy God. The sin of Adam not only brought physical death, but it brought spiritual death. Whereas mankind is now inclined towards wickedness, inclined towards evil from their very birth. As we went over last week, verses 13 and 14 are really an explanation of verse 12. Our text today, verses 15 through 17, is really an explanation on the last statement in verse 14. In verse 14, we read, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. They didn't blatantly break the law of God as Adam had a, 
a very clear command by the Lord, do not eat of the tree. He broke it. Still, death is passed upon all mankind because all are, are sinners, even though perhaps they did not blatantly break the law of God as Adam did. But here's what he says in the last. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. That particular statement. And now you have verses 15 through 17 that are going to be an explanation over that last statement. It's almost as if the Apostle Paul is saying, yes, Adam was a type as he was a representative of all mankind. And then you have Christ who is the representative of all mankind of those who are in him. But it's almost as if he's saying, let me give another parenthesis here. Uh, Christ is not like Adam. Christ is far greater than Adam. And the blessings that Christ brings is far greater than the condemnation that Adam brought. So you have the apostle then who is bringing out this explanation. Yes, Adam was a type, but he's not equal to the antitype. He's not equal to the fulfillment who is Christ himself. For Christ is far greater than Adam. And so you have in verses 15 through 17, really these contrasts, these three contrasts between Adam and Christ. And it's meant to raise the affections of God's people to to establish joy in recognizing that Christ's work for us far outweighs the condemnation that was brought upon us by Adam. To make this distinction to say what Adam destroyed, Christ was not only able to bring it back, but even to a greater degree because of what he did. It is meant for the people of God then to look to Christ. It's always, it's always really the same, generally speaking, in order to take our eyes off of ourself or take our eyes off of whatever it is that's in our life and to focus it upon Christ. It's meant to bring assurance to us. And that's within our text today. This text truly does raise our affections for Christ as we recognize once again what the sovereign king did on behalf of his people. If you struggle with assurance, as oftentimes that is the case among God's people. If you struggle with assurance, then this text speaks to you. If in your own life, if you only see the negative aspects of life, the trials and the griefs, and you can never see the good in anything, then this text speaks to you. Because this text helps to focus you once again on the life that Christ has ransomed for you. That he has purchased for you. That in him you have life. So I pray this text indeed gives us a greater understanding of God's great sovereign grace within Christ. That it truly does raise our affections and cultivate a life of joy in him. If you would, let us stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. God's Word says, But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God in the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. 
But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Father, thank you that we are continually reminded, continually reminded here in Romans as well as elsewhere, that our salvation is dependent upon the one, the obedience of the one, the work of the one, the merit of the one. Oh, Father, lift our affections towards you, incline our hearts towards you as we work our way through this passage. May the Spirit of God do a mighty work within us. Give us encouragement. Give us strength, Father. Give us the joy of your salvation that we continually retain it within our hearts and not let the things of this world deter us or rob us of that joy. Father, we pray for all your people here that you would be glorified in their sight, that Christ would be magnified in their hearts through the Spirit of God whom you've granted to us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. Anna, will you get me a water, please? So here again, we have verses 15 and 7 through, excuse me, 15 through 17 that are the explanation uh, really going into more, uh, more detail of that last statement of verse 14 of Adam being a type of him who is to come. So here's what he says. Again, it's almost as if he has to stop in his tracks for just a moment, just to clarify. Because Adam was just a man. Adam, because of his one transgression, plunged all mankind into sin and death. And Paul has to say, but hang on a second. Let me tell you more about this. Let me give you more detail about Christ, who is the fulfillment of which I am speaking. He actually starts out very emphatically in this verse. He starts out with this word in our English. We just see, but. We see a contrast Okay, he said this statement here, and then there's a contrast, but this isn't just a word just to simply introduce a contrast. This is a very emphatic word that's translated but. This isn't kai in the Greek, kai. This is Allah. And it's very emphatic. Stop in your tracks. Let me clarify. And then he introduces this other language to us that we had not been introduced to yet about the salvation that is in Christ. So he says, but he was a type of him who was to come, but hang on. The free gift, he says, is not like the transgression. You actually have that said in the next verse too. The free gift isn't like this. The free gift isn't like this. This free gift, and this is the word uh, that comes from the, the Greek word charisma. And it means gift of grace or grace gift. A divinely conferred gift, which is enough in itself to 
to really focus in on the fact of our salvation not being our own doing because he literally says that this that we have received is a grace gift. Salvation is a grace, grace gift. Reconciliation is a grace gift. Justification is a grace gift. Adoption is a grace gift. The effectual calling that we talk about is a grace gift. It's all a grace gift. It's not your own doing. If it was your own doing, then it, it couldn't be a grace gift. could not be a gift of grace, a divinely conferred gift upon his people. It would be something that was earned or something that was merited. But the very fact that he uses this word is an indicator of this is no obligation on God's part, but he freely gives. It is the word charisma. Don't be confused, even though we recognize or we refer to certain sects of Christianity as the charismatics that focus on uh, or try to focus on the supposed continuing supernatural gifts of the spirit. They really should be called the energomatic, you know, is, is the actual word there. It'd be kind of weird, though, to say energomatics. So probably charismatics is at least easier off the tongue there. But this is a free gift, and it is free, one, because God is under no obligation to give it. It is free because it was according to God's sovereign, free choice to give it. Here's the thing about understanding salvation as a free gift. You cannot say that salvation is a free gift of God or a grace gift of God while maintaining yet this, this idea that God is obligated to give it to everybody. God is obligated to give everyone a chance. If there's an obligation on God's part toward anyone, no longer a grace gift. Cannot be. Because in the moment that we put conditions on things or we put obligations on God, grace is out. Grace is no more. Now you have conditions. Now you have obligation. So it's a free gift because no obligation on God's part to give it. It's a free gift because he sovereignly chooses to give it to whomever he wants. It's a free gift because there's no strings attached. There's no works to be done. There's no merits to do. There's no rituals to perform. And so he says that this free, sovereign gift of God is not like the transgression. Now, this word transgression, it means to go off the path. We talk about sin. Sin is missing the mark. As if you're, you know, you, anybody that plays darts, you know, you're trying to always hit the bullseye. Well, sin is, is missing the bullseye. But when you talk about transgression, you're not just talking about not only missing the bullseye, but you're talking about going way off the path that you're supposed to be on. And that's what Adam had done. He didn't just miss the mark. There was blatant rebellion on the part of Adam. And looking at that text that we looked at last week in Genesis 3, when you look and, and see what had happened, you have Eve that is, yes, deceived by Satan. And they saw that the tree was good for food. Satan had convinced them, basically, God is trying to withhold something good from you. That's why he doesn't want you to eat of the tree. He, does, he knows that in the day you eat of it, you're going to be like him. And so what then did they do? They doubted the character of God. They doubted the word of God. They allied themselves with the enemy in rebellion against God. So this isn't just a matter of, I made a, a slight mistake. This is a matter of the very epitome of evil 
I just allied myself with against the holy God. So Adam committed transgression, not just sin. Great transgression. He was on the path of righteousness, you could say. Then he deviated and took his own path. That is exactly what Adam had done. But here's what he says. Because of this transgression, we learn in verse 12, this transgression resulted in death and sin to all mankind. None are exempt. None are without sin. No one is born in a state of innocence. No one. If that were true, then that means that they could possibly remain in that state of innocence and never die. Because if you're in that state of innocence and you have not transgressed the law of God, why do people still die? Because it's an illusion. No one is born in innocence. If you were in innocence, you would be in the same state that Adam was created in. And that's not true of anyone. Adam caused all mankind to fall into sin and death. But here's the good news. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died. Like basically saying everybody died at the same time. Because of his transgression, automatic, everybody died. Spiritually, everybody will die physically. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died. Much more. This is that, this is that contrast that we had been in earlier in, in Romans, verses 6 through 11, you had those, those degrees that, that were being contrasted with the lesser. It was the arguments from the lesser to the greater. It was emphasizing something even more, emphasizing something greater. And this is what Paul is doing again. He says, much more to a greater degree, even more so. Did the grace of God... And the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Now, there's some things to look at here and just, to, just some side notes. One, he emphasizes the humanity of Christ here because he is anticipating that his readers agree that there was such a man named Adam. Adam was a historical figure. And if we don't believe that Adam is a historical figure, then we have real problems when it comes to passages like this, which Christ and Adam are contrasted against each other. But notice that this grace was not just from God. It wasn't just from the Father. It was gifted also by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. It wasn't just a matter of the Father sending the Son. It was a matter of the Son saying to the Father, I will go and I will accomplish this. I will do this. So that the result of Adam will not be on all mankind. But he would be the representative of a new group. He would be the last Adam. And he says that this abounds to the many. And you have, actually, you have two different ways in which this word many is used. Just as we're going to see in the same, same chapter here that you're going to have two different ways in which the word all is used. Have you ever heard that saying all means all and that's all all means? 
And that's just nonsense. Because in this passage here, we're going to see that all has a more, uh, more of the meaning of not just universally of all those in Adam, but also all those who are in Christ. We know all will not be saved and that people will go to hell. And so, therefore, when we see the word all in reference to Christ, that it is speaking of those who are in him, those who will believe. And this is the same thing here, speaking again of the contrast of the two. The free gift that comes through Christ, the transgression that came through Adam, because of Adam's sin, the many died. Those who he represents died. For those that are in Christ, you have the abundance of grace for the many that are in him. This gift of grace brought about by the one man, Jesus Christ. And it far outweighs everything that Adam did. One writer says this, Christ's influence for good far outweighs Adam's effectiveness for evil. The free gift is not like the trespass, that is, is far more effective than the trespass. As Adam accumulated debt for all mankind, Christ not only wipes it clean, but deposits his righteousness to all who are in him. And that's something, too, that these verses really bring out for us as well. It's not just a matter of Christ, as Dr. Lawson says, it's not just a matter of Adam sinking the ship and then Christ bringing the ship back up. It's a matter of him bringing the ship up and then taking it up to heaven. It's a far greater work of what Christ is doing. Because if Christ just wipes our slate clean and he brings us back from being in debt to sin to now being at zero, then we still don't have what is necessary to come into the presence of God. We need righteousness. You need the perfection that is only found in Christ imputed to you. The perfection of the one who carried out all the demands of the law of God to its perfection was declared righteous. His righteousness credited to you. It has to go to your account. Or we're, we're left at zero. But we're still not able to come into the presence of God. That's why it is necessary when you're looking at the work of Christ, it is necessary for both what's referred to as the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. The active obedience of Christ is that which is his life. We focus a lot on his death. Jesus died for our sins. And yes, that is absolutely true. But we cannot neglect his life as well. If it was necessary for him just to come to the cross, he could have come straight down from heaven, went to the cross and ascended back up to heaven. But he's, he's born of a virgin. He lives a full life. He grows from an infant into a man. And then he begins his ministry as the Messiah. What was he doing all that time? He was actively fulfilling the law of God to its perfection. Because God demands absolute perfection. Demands absolute perfection to come into his presence. And so since we can't do it. That's why it was necessary that Christ come and that he live the perfect life. Then he goes to the cross, which is referred to as his passive obedience. There's nothing passive about it, but it's understood that he uh, willingly went for the, the father to pour out his wrath upon him. And there he pays the penalty of sin. There he pays the sin debt. So you have the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to the believer through faith. You have Christ on the cross, who's... Who, who takes upon himself all of the sin of his people. 
He is punished by his father. His divine wrath poured out on him, and he satisfies the justice of God. So he satisfies the demands of God. He satisfies the justice of God, and these on behalf of his people. That's why his life is just as important as his death. It was a grace of Christ himself to be willing to come. And the work that he performed far outweighed anything that Adam did. Adam accumulated debt. Christ wipes it clean, all the slate clean, and then pours into your account righteousness. Adam brought transgression, sin, death. You know, this isn't, you know, when you think about what Adam brought into the world, this isn't just a a situation in which Adam committed, again, a small sin and was uh, desirous to repair the damages, if you will. And I say this because if we really think that we can earn our favor with God, that we can actually do good works and gain God's favor, all we have to do is just stop for a minute and think about all the sins that we have done in our life and yet how futile that, that, that whole thing is for us to even try to do that. Adam broke one law. If it was even remotely possible that someone could, by their good works, by their merits, by certain rituals or ceremonies, gain back the favor of God, surely Adam would have done it. As he only broke one. So if Adam couldn't do it, then why is it that we even would entertain the thought that we could even do the same or that we could gain our favor with God? Why would we even entertain the thought? Because surely Adam would have done it if it was possible. Adam not only brought physical death, but he brought spiritual death. All mankind is now plunged into sin. In a state of rebellion. You think about the state of rebellion that we are in. Because man, by his very nature, is not good. As some would say. Man is inclined towards wickedness. In Galatians chapter 5, we read this in verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The apostle says in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning verse 17, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. This is the natural state of man. He will find himself in one of these areas here, or multiple ones. Because he is born a sinner, he is born spiritually dead. He's not, he's not able himself to choose the ultimate good because he is dead in his trespasses and sin. There's no good there. 
These are the, the deeds of the flesh. This is the mind of the unbelieving because of Adam's transgression. And we need to let that sink in. We need to allow that to, to permeate in, into our minds there because if we're not understanding the state in which Adam had placed us, then it's very hard to be appreciative of what Christ has pulled us out of. So the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. But he goes on. Not only do you have this abounding grace that has been brought about in Christ, but you also have Paul going into our justification that arose out of our condemnation. You have a statement very similar to verse 15. Again, contrasting justification and condemnation. The gift is not like, again, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. Again, the emphasis, it's not the same. The two men are not the same. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. The judgment, the divine verdict. The divine verdict came about upon all mankind. All are guilty. And all deserve condemnation. All are under divine wrath. That's what he says. On one transgression. You think of that. We like to excuse sin. We like to say, well, it's not that big of a, a deal. But sin is so offensive to a holy God that one sin is enough to condemn you. That's how, that's how holy and righteous that God is. In His holiness, in His uniqueness, in His otherness, in His perfection... His holiness demands justice. Demands justice. And so upon one sin, what's the divine verdict? Guilty. Because of one transgression. You know, when you think about the holiness of God and the hatred that God has towards sin, and you think about His perfection and in the uniqueness of His being, that He's in a category all to Himself... Absolute perfection in everything that he says, everything that he does, everything that he is. It's no wonder that when man gets close to God, as Isaiah did, or as Peter did, or as John did, they are immediately aware of their own sin. Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man, that's what Peter says. Isaiah calls down a divine curse upon himself. I'm coming undone, I'm ruined, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. John falls at his feet like a dead man, seeing the glorified Christ. Because they recognize the holiness of the one and the unholiness of who they are. And it produces fear and terror. One sin is enough to condemn. So on the one hand, the divine verdict, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, these contrasts are wonderful. 
You get the bad news. But then he says, but, let me tell you this. On the one hand, everybody is guilty. Everybody deserves condemnation. But on the other hand, and then you get the good news. On the other hand, the free gift, the grace gift, he says, arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Now, this is something amazing to consider. Again, looking at the degree of what Adam accomplished and what Christ accomplishes. Because of one sin, Adam plunges all mankind into sin. Because of one sin, condemnation upon him, condemnation upon all that's what they deserve. We understand that God had grace in Genesis 3.15 when he brings about what's referred to as the covenant of grace. He basically says, as he speaks to both Eve and the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you two. He's, he's saying, she allied herself with you against me, but you can't have her. I'm going to redeem her. And then you have the promise of the redeemer. The one who comes is going to crush the head of the serpent. But because of that one transgression, all are born already under the judgment of God. But think of this. And this is why this is so encouraging, especially when you begin to wonder about your assurance in Christ and wonder if I've done this and I've done that, surely I cannot be a Christian because look what I said or look what I did. And we put this standard of perfection upon us, a standard that we cannot keep. And so we keep looking at ourselves. But here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that what Christ did far outweighs what Adam did. And what Christ has accomplished, he accomplished it fully. He accomplished it completely for all those who are in him. The free gift arose out of many transgressions. This isn't just a matter of because of your sin, Christ only dying for so many of your sins or that his death and his atonement only accomplishes so much and that you still have work to do. In view of the many transgressions of all those who would believe in him. Of everything that they would do from the moment that they took their first breath until they take their last breath. In view of it all. He paid the ultimate payment. He paid it in full. He paid it completely. And there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. His death. His finished work. Was sufficient. One writer says this, that one single misdeed should be answered by judgment. This is perfectly understandable. That the accumulated sins and guilt of all the ages should be answered by God's free gift. That is the miracle of miracles, utterly beyond human comprehension. It's understandable that he would bring condemnation because of sin and disobedience. It's beyond human comprehension. Why he would carry out the work of salvation in order to redeem man. But Christ's death, his work, was absolutely sufficient to cleanse all sins. Everything that you yourself would do, all your transgressions, all the times 
prior to your conversion in which you went your own way. His work is sufficient to cover it all. And that's why when you're looking at these verses, there's no, there's no conditions here. There's no, there's no place in, in the scripture in which you have this idea that is so prevalent today of, well, Jesus did so much and the rest is up to you. That is utter nonsense. You know, we, we don't sing, Jesus paid some. Jesus paid most of it. We sing, he paid it all. All to him I owe. That's, that's the great news of the gospel. He didn't just do some of it, and there's still something left to do. When he saves you, he saves you fully. And completely. And he does so in view of all your transgressions, all the transgressions of his people. There is nothing left out here. There is nothing more that needs to occur. Nothing. Again, it goes back to this this whole statement, this whole theme right here. The, the point of all of this is to, again, to say that Christ is far greater than Adam. This isn't two equals here. Well, because of Adam, I'm in sin, but, but Christ, he's trying to bring me out of it. I'm stuck between the two. I still have sins that I need to do something about. So though I know that I'm in sin and I know that I deserve condemnation. I'm trying to work my way over here in order to fully apply to my own self the merits of what he has done. There's nothing like that ever within the scripture. We gain more in Christ than we lost in Adam. And so you have not only contrasting those who died to those who abound now in Christ, not only those who are condemned and those who are now justified in view of the many transgressions, but then you have this third contrast here. You have this emphasis here on the gift of life. Death reigned through the one, but life reigns through the other. Here's what he says. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Because of the transgression of the one, Death reigned. Death prevailed. And we saw that in the verses that we went over last Lord's Day. That death reigned from Adam until Moses, even when the law was given. And then when the law is given, man dies even more, you could say. Because now he's fully aware of all his shortcomings. And death still reigns. Death, as, as Dr. Lawson would say, death is a merciless tyrant, a merciless monarch. 
Death brings about despair and grief and sorrow and pain. One of the things that you can look at in this world, one of the great pains of this world is indeed death. When you lose someone that you love, you think of the pain that you endure. Think of, think of this, though. Think of the pain that would be there if you weren't in Christ. Think of the sorrow that would be there if you weren't in Christ. Or the despair or the hopelessness that you would have if you were not in Christ. It's hard to imagine what things were like before you were converted. But just take the sorrow that you feel now and just amplify it because that's what it would be. Death reigned from the very beginning even until, even until now for those especially who are not in Christ. It will come. It will take them in a moment that they don't think it will come. It doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter what stage in life that you are. Death will come at God's appointed time. And then the pain that will be there will come. So death reigned through the one, but the contrast again, much more. Much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. How is that? Well, first you get the abundance of grace that he's been referring to all of, throughout all of this. This grace in which you stand that he started out with in chapter 5. This immovable grace that you are continually in. This grace that is with you throughout every day. God's favor upon you. His presence with you. This grace by which he has granted us salvation. Granted us the reconciliation. All of that. You have an abundance of grace. It's grace upon grace to all of God's people. You know, some people don't receive a little bit of grace and others receive a whole lot more grace. You receive the fullness of grace. All of you do who are in Christ. And not only do you receive the fullness of grace and the abundance of grace, because this is going to come into play about this reign of life here, to recognize this, that you have received the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. The gift of of righteousness. Again, Christ not only pays the sin debt, but he pours into your account his righteousness, his perfection. And this is a gift to you. This is, again, one of those beyond human comprehensions. Why would he gift that to us? You know, I think it was Piper. I think it was John Piper who had said that it would have been an act of grace if we would have just been uh, spared from hell. Just that would be an act of grace. It would be an act of grace if God had just placed us into a, a, a place where there is no torment, but yet there is no joy at the same time. That would be an act of God's grace. But the fact that God not only delivers us from hell, and the fact that He not only uh, allows us to to escape his wrath and to escape perhaps suffering as, as far as the torment of, of what would be. 
he brings us into his presence to, to know and to experience unspeakable joy. Unfathomable joy in him. What grace that God has. An abundance of grace. This gift of righteousness is a gift of grace. Because of this righteousness, we are privileged then to come into the presence of God, to be called by Him, to be made alive by Him, to be granted faith in Him, to be justified in Him, to be adopted by Him, to be sanctified by Him, to be united with Him, to be preserved by Him, and ultimately to be glorified in Him. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? That's why we sing that. There is no more for heaven now to give. Because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit spared nothing when he gave us Christ. So what does this mean? That through the one, much more, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ, will prevail in life, will persevere in life. How is this? You know, for those who are now in Christ, death is no longer a reigning monarch or a merciless tyrant. For those that are in Christ, death is now our gain. And so we can live life in such a way, being confident in Christ, to be bold in the Lord, to reign in life, to no longer be under the mastery of sin, but to live in view of what God has prepared for his people. He has said that we may have an abundant life, a fulfilled life, to have joy in Him, to have peace that surpasses all understanding, a peace that He gives that the world can't give. You think of all the things that we are privileged to experience now, the joy in the Lord, especially as we hear passages uh, throughout the Scripture that, that really emphasize even more of, of what Christ has done, even in view of who we were. He still loved us. He demonstrated his own love toward us while we were yet sinners. He died for us. That's what we went over before. You think about the joy and the peace that comes to your heart as you recognize and, and you continually reflect upon Christ has paid it all. I am complete in him. I lack nothing in him. That he has brought me before the Father that I have nothing to fear when I die on account of him because he has promised eternal life. Think of the peace that comes over your heart. Think of the peace that comes over your heart whenever you have loved ones that die. That is just unexplainable. How it is that in the midst of grief, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of that, that pain of, of the loss of someone that you can still have within your heart this peace saying, glory be to you, O Lord. How is that? Because the very things that Christ has promised is evident in your life even now. And you are privileged to experience them even now. The blessings of this free gift is yours. 
You can reign in life. He says they will reign. Those that receive this will reign in life through the one Christ Jesus. There are times in which we, we only see the negative aspects of things. We only see the bad things. We can only focus on what bad thing is happening right now. But what Christ has promised is, turn your gaze, look up here, and see what I have for you. This life isn't all that there is. And in fact, when you look at this life, this is going to be the shortest time of your existence. Regardless if you are privileged to live till 90, 100 This is the shortest time of your existence because there is so much more after this. And so in view of eternity, in view of what Christ has given to his people that is yet to come, we live this life confidently as, as we stand before the critics. We can stand boldly in the Lord and boldly in the truth of God. As you endure the pains of this life and the daily trials that you endure, take your eyes off of it and look up. Because Christ has promised you peace. He has promised you joy. Stop looking at the negative things. Look up. And behold the majesty of your king. Because that's when the joy that he has promised you comes to your heart. And the peace comes to your heart. So you reign in life. You are able to experience it now. But then the eternal life that is also in view here, it is yours. It is yours in him. And there, you won't have to contend with any of these other things and you'll be able to experience it to the fullness. The joy that is in the Lord on account of Christ. So because... Of him, because of all that he has accomplished, he he has allowed us then to experience such joy if we will focus upon it. See what I have done for you. See what I have brought to you. See how I have reconciled you. See how, on account of me. You're now declared by the divine verdict this time, not guilty. So looking at a number of things here as we conclude everything. Salvation is a free gift of grace by God. It is not merited, cannot be earned. We often have a problem with this. And we have a problem relinquishing this idea of God's sovereign grace that he gives it to whom he desires to give it to. We have difficulty with that because we have loved ones. We have family that are unbelieving. We have friends that are unbelieving. And we don't want to relinquish this, this responsibility unto the Lord because then we're, we're scared. What if he doesn't choose them? And so we can't, we can't give that up. It must be that in my efforts of trying to reach them, that's what's going to do it. What does the scripture say? But surely the judge of all the earth will do right. And whatever he does is right. 
And as long, on the other side of things, as long as we have breath in our lungs and they have breath in their lungs, there is always hope. Always. Think of whatever age that you were whenever the Lord brought you to faith. Did everybody come to faith at the same time, at the same age? God has his appointed time. He has his reasons for whatever the time frame is, is to when he brings you to faith. But it's according to his sovereign will. And what then is your responsibility and mine? But to continually place before those whom we love, our family and our friends, to continually place before them the truth of God in Christ in the gospel. And to trust the judge of all the earth will do right. If you struggle with assurance, this is another passage here just to emphasize to you that it's all done. It's all complete. If you could merit your salvation or you could merit enough favor with God that he would be gracious to you, just remember this. If that was possible, that's what Adam would have done. He would have restored himself back into fellowship with the Lord so that all his children and all his posterity would then be born in the state of innocence in which he was created. But that's just not so. So if Adam couldn't do it because of one transgression, you surely cannot do it because of the many. But that's where, again, it just, it just amplifies the very things that Christ has done because he didn't just do it for one of your transgressions, he did it for all of them. The scripture says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified, or those in your translations, those who are being sanctified. By the one offering perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the very fact that they're being sanctified means that they are not in a state of perfection. They are being conformed to the image of Christ. John Piper says, The perfecting of his people is complete, and it is complete forever. You who have received the gift of Christ, the totality of our salvation, the, the reconciliation, all the things that have been spoken of, you will prevail in life. You will persevere in life through him. That is one of the blessings that have come to you. You will overcome. It may be a difficult road, but you will persevere because this is what he has promised you. So as you live your life then, in view of all the difficulties in your life, recognize this. Christ says, in this life you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. We could look at that. And even in the midst of a terrible situation, tribulation, be of good cheer. Because Christ has overcome the world. Don't just look at your situation, but think of what he has done. Think of what he has for you. And to know eternal life is not something that we will have. Eternal life is something that you do have if you are in Christ. You do have eternal life 
the full, uh, obviously the full manifestation of that is yet to come when Christ calls you home and you are privileged to experience the fullness of that blessing. But it is yours now. And the merits of what Christ has accomplished being applied to you through the Holy Spirit are yours even now. Maybe not to the fullest because we're still imperfect. We still sin. But you are privileged to experience them now. So as you live your life, do not live your life defeated. Don't live your life defeated because of your circumstances. Because you are more than conquerors to him who loved you. Don't forget these truths. Because these are important. These are vital to the life of the believer. To give us strength to carry on. And to look forward to the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this portion of your word. Thank you for these wonderful truths, these realities of the Christian life, these realities of what Christ has accomplished, that what he has accomplished far outweighs what Adam lost. He is a great Savior, He is a powerful Savior. He is indeed the sovereign king, the Lord of lords. Father, there are many things that come in life that attempt to rob us of our joy, rob us of our peace. Things that take our eyes off of you. But, O oh Lord, may passages like this be brought back to our remembrance through the spirit of God whom you've granted to us that we remember what Christ has purchased for us. Not only eternal life, not only favor with you, but even more. He has given us such great blessings that we may live an abundant life here in view of what he has done, that we may behold you every day, recognizing the gracious and wonderful God that has saved sinners. Father, may our lives indeed reflect our love for Christ, our devotion to him. And may every day, by the Spirit of God, you raise our affections. That we would stand even more confidently in your truth. Father, we love you. We give you praise for all things in Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen.